This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. What really changed for Europe as a result of COVID was it took a pretty material step forward in respect of operating as one as it faced the question of how are we going to cope with the crisis and then recover from the crisis. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Brexit may be in the rearview mirror in terms of the UK leaving the European Union. However, the landscape for the financial services sector continues to shift as companies set up shop outside London in various cities across Europe. I spoke with Christine Braden, City Europe Head and CEO, Citigroup Global Markets Europe AG in Frankfurt, Germany, about the implications for U.S. companies and about Europe's post-COVID recovery plans. Christine, welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Beverly. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, let's talk the Brexit aftermath. What's coming in terms of financial changes for Europe that's centered around Brexit? You know, it's interesting. Brexit has been a long time coming. Obviously, it was 2016 when things kicked off with the initial vote. So it's been almost five years now that uh, we've been preparing for the moment which finally took place at the end of last year. And there's so much that's actually changing. If you think about it, years ago, and for really the last 200 years, London has acted as the financial center for the UK, but also for Europe, and in many cases for the rest of the world. And what's really changing now is post-Brexit, we need to think about what is that financial center going to look like for Europe and potentially where that financial center will actually be. Europe doesn't really have a financial capital, correct? Not one central place. It really doesn't. Europe has a variety of financial centers and actually financial specializations. And that's partially started before Brexit, but it's actually accelerated with Brexit. And so one of the things that's been interesting to observe with Brexit is the fact that certain specializations are now coalescing around certain capitals in Europe. So for example, the asset management and wealth management hub for Europe outside of Switzerland, which is not an EU country, is actually landing in Luxembourg. Other centers like Paris, which are of course important in their own right, are actually becoming, for many of the banks and financial industry uh, champions, a trading hub. Germany, largely based out of Frankfurt, is the place where many of the uh, companies and post-Brexit banks are establishing their headquarters for governance and for interaction with the regulators. You may know that the European Central Bank actually is based here in Frankfurt, which is where I'm sitting today. And so it's been really interesting to see leading up to Brexit and now post-Brexit how these different sort of national capitals are becoming specialists. But what's really different is that it's not one location, it's many. And how is this fragmented approach, if you could actually call it fragmented, how is it going to impact the financial sector or will it impact the financial sector at all? So when I think about 
Europe. I think Europe, from a financial perspective, has various objectives that it needs to to think about. One is what, in effect, does it need to build, and so that fragmentation or that specialization, on the one hand, is a strength because certain competencies are being developed. Let me pull out one, which I think has gotten a lot of headlines. You know, the Netherlands or Amsterdam has actually become one of the largest share trading locations post-Brexit. And in fact, just a couple months after Brexit became bigger in terms of volume than the UK. And so, you know, you have this, let's say, leveraging strengths. On the other hand, a lot of the, let's call it established infrastructure is still being built. And so we've got to really work through what is that going to look like? And this gets into some of the the details, but, you know, how is that infrastructure actually established across the region in a coherent way? And I know the EU uh, policymakers are really thinking about what that future should look like and how they will continue to, let's say, chart their future relative to the financial competencies that have, have historically actually been based out of London. And what are the implications for U.S. companies operating in Europe? You're with Citi, and full disclosure for our audience, Citi is the sponsor and founding partner with Smart Women, Smart Power for our speaker series. Citi's a U.S. company. What kind of implications does all of this change have for it and for others? What's been interesting is effectively, you know, which banks are affected, and in large part, it's the American banks and, of course, the British banks. And so from an American perspective... The good news for a bank like Citi is we've been in Europe for over a 100 years, but some of our peer institutions were, let's say, much more heavily based out of London. And so there's been implications for the relocation of people and staff, obviously quite impacted through COVID. There have been implications also for the nature in which they're operating here. So many of the banks have had to start new legal entities in which to be compliant with Brexit regulations. And they've had to think about, you know, what products and services are they, you know, serving from Europe to the wider world. Now, one of the things that's quite interesting is that we're not just, you know, serving European clients, we're actually serving global clients who want to interact with Europe. And so for those of us who are American, that means giving American clients access to Europe and European products and financial services through Europe today, which is a pretty big change when it used to all be centralized out of London. And speaking of London, what does this mean? As you said, it was traditionally the major financial hub. You know, look, in many ways, I think London continues to be, you know, a financial center in its own right. And for City, it remains our Europe, Middle East, Africa hub. So I don't think that's necessarily going to change, but it will mean that, you know, to some degree, depending upon the kind of roles that various bankers have, many of them are going to need to relocate. And the other thing is that, you know, and some of this is actually creating to some degree new complexities. When we think about where risk is managed, that risk is going to be, let's say, split between the continent and London. And that does mean that it's it's a little bit more 
complicated to manage, if you will, because rather than doing things in one place, we're doing it in, in two. And I think for, for London, for example, going back to the share trading, a lot of those flows have moved. And so that's a pretty big deal now that Europe is, is offering all those services for itself in and from the continent. And so London will really need to adjust to that reality. And financial services is really like a big network. You have consultants, you have accountants, you have lawyers. In fact, you know, many of those competencies will also need to now coalesce outside London back on the continent and new competencies being developed here, like using Spanish law versus English law, for example. And so I suspect things will shake out over the coming three to five years. And you will see in some ways, you know, Europe almost specialize or be focused on all of those differences. Whereas in the case of London, it may end up actually also specializing very much in areas outside of Europe. So it might provide access to, you know, more African or Asian or non-European countries. And that will change the complexion of, of the skills and services that are actually offered from London. Let's talk about COVID and hopefully one day soon, the post-COVID world. Europe's not federalized in the same way that the U.S. is, and it doesn't have the state and local structures that we're all familiar with here in the United States. But the COVID pandemic has had an impact And how has it moved this issue forward and the effort to deal with it? Yeah, I think COVID has been a watershed moment for Europe. And to your point, you know, in the United States, we have a federal and state structure. What really changed for Europe as a result of COVID was it took a pretty material step forward in respect of operating as one as it faced the question of how are we going to cope with the crisis and then recover from the crisis. What many people may have heard about is the European Recovery Fund, which was a very quickly decided, and you know, Europe often isn't quick about these sorts of things, but COVID as a catalyst meant it took a very quick decision to act in a much more federal way, which I thought was very interesting being an American and observing this firsthand. And, you know, we had some precedent for that. You might remember the moment when Mario Draghi in 2012 said, you know, we're going to be decisive around the euro and do whatever it takes to preserve Europe in light of things like the then financial crisis. But this was really a step forward around COVID. And so, you know, we're excited about that because this has really brought sort of policy and the policy direction of Europe forward particularly in two areas. The first one is around digitization, and the second one is really around their plans for ESG. And let's talk about digitization. How did COVID actually speed up what's happening on that front? You know, it's interesting. I was I was talking to a client over lunch just uh, during one of these little lulls in the lockdowns. And for her company, she basically said, COVID was like taking the company forward 10 years. Things that everyone said, well, we need wet ink documentation and and physical signatures and in-person meetings and things to get business done. 
frankly, COVID was absolutely going at the core of how are we going to operate? And that enabled companies to take sort of a giant leap forward through digitization. It's also, I think, exposed areas for further development and things like education. As all of us know, you know, we're all homeschooling our kids as a result of the lockdowns. And so digitization has surfaced in many different ways. But I think what it's also done is when, and this is one of the things I personally respect very much about Europe, is when they think about, okay, if we want to use this moment and not waste a good crisis, uh, to quote Churchill, it's going to look like, you know, investing in those areas where Europe itself wants to be a lot more forward thinking. And they have narrowed in and asked the various countries who will be recipients of the recovery fund that I just mentioned, you know, where can we actually help you progress in the areas of your own digitization? That might be in competencies, that might be in education, that might be in helping to free up funding to fund new digital startups. And to me, that's very exciting because I think it will be a catalyst to move Europe forward meaningfully in that area. And continuing on the digital front, you mentioned that you're at the ECB as we speak. The ECB president, Christine Lagarde, has a strategy for a digital euro. And was that something that came out of COVID forcing digitization to move forward? I think in part. So yes, I am sitting here in Frankfurt, just steps away from the ECB, which has a a beautiful building on the Main River. Obviously, central bank digital currencies and the digital euro in our region are, I think, you know, very interesting developments. And I think they're born partially out of the fact that a little bit like the United States, places like Germany and much of, let's call it more Southern Europe, still are not particularly well digitized in terms of their financial services. So there's still a lot of use of cash or debit cards or what have you, a little bit like you know, the old-fashioned checks we use back home in the United States. So one has definitely been, you know, the, the catalyst of COVID. But I actually think there's a much bigger catalyst or two different catalysts that I find very interesting around, you know, should Europe actually have its own digital euro. The first one is the rise of private currencies, and maybe the most famous of which is the formerly announced Libra. And Libra was somewhat of a, you know, wake up call, if you will, to sovereign issuers of currency like, you know, the European Central Bank or many other national countries and basically said, well, you know, who actually has the right to issue a currency and what use is that for? So I think the first real catalyst was the private, you know, bitcoins and others. The second catalyst has actually been, frankly, looking east and seeing that countries in Asia, in particular China, are moving very quickly towards digitization entirely of their financial system. And so, you know, the ECB, to its credit, has launched and just completed an analysis of their own plans to move forward with a digital currency. It's not going to happen overnight. There are definitely a lot of design elements that need to be assessed in putting it all together. I think the biggest one that came out of their assessment was actually privacy, which I thought was very European, uh, to point that out. 
But in general, I think it's been a very interesting debate. And in and of itself, you know, Brexit aside, the future of a digital euro will again chart the course for many years to come in respect of how the financial markets in Europe operate. And what would it mean to have a digital currency that is backed by a central bank? Well, again, setting aside complicated design questions, and they are quite complicated, so you can spend your life reading about it. But in effect, what what is the main difference? The main difference is that rather than a bank issuing currency, what would change is that the central bank would be the one taking the money, potentially. And in that particular design, which is, I think, typically the one that central banks themselves are evaluating, the real question is, does that disintermediate the commercial banking sector? And this is the really core question uh, that the banking world wants to get clear. And the central banks, um, frankly, also want to make sure doesn't disrupt the financial systems. And so the question is, is how do you minimize disruption to the existing commercial banking center, banks like Citibank, if the central bank itself, which is typically in any country, the safest counterparty, if you will, ensuring that they don't all of a sudden become the sole holder of all the deposits in the country. The good news is whether it's the central bank here in Europe, or, you know, we talk a lot to the Swiss National Bank and others, they are very aware of this risk and they themselves want to make sure that actually together we can improve the payment systems that exist around the world using digitization, but at the same time, make sure that we each play our part, which I think is very important. A couple of follow-ups. You mentioned China and the speed with which it's moving in this area. And I read where it's currently testing a digital currency domestically. But what would it mean if China used its digital currency globally? You know, I think this is also a really interesting question. So let's say all the central banks around the world begin to issue their own currency through the use of central bank digital currencies. Then there might be, let's call it a competition among countries. To some degree, that competition already exists and is, you can mostly see it in the exchange rates um, that you get when you, you know, go abroad. If any of us can remember that concept (laughs) pre-COVID. But the interesting thing is that should some of these currencies start to be issued, not just locally, but truly globally, and at some level, I think that's maybe where this is eventually going, you could have situations where, in effect, that currency, um, you have, you know, depositors taking the money out of a country and putting it in a country that they deem to be stronger. And that's one of the things that we'll have to solve for in this new world of central bank digital currencies. You know, you don't want all the money in the world ultimately landing in, you know, I don't know, again, Switzerland, I'll, I'll take that out as an example. And so these controls and balances among the system are going to be incredibly important. And one last question before we leave this topic, where does Bitcoin fit in all of this? And would a digital currency backed by a central bank compete with Bitcoin or how would that work? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So Bitcoin in its simplest form is the other side of the coin, not to be too cute, but effectively it's actually a private coin. And what do I mean by that? There is no government who is typically the lender of last resort standing behind Bitcoin. It is a, by definition, uh, private compilation of people who participate in that network. And so as we have both private coins and sovereign backed digital currencies coexist with each other, they will to some degree inherently compete offering different advantages to different users. And what I think is very interesting in all of this are the specific design questions around things like, are you anonymous? You know, is your information private? How much do people understand about you when you use these things? Um, and in the case of Bitcoin, it's, it's much more of an anonymous offering versus those that are being designed, let's say, more in the government area. And one of the things we as a bank want to see, because today we hold the risk, and I think it's really important, you know, we want to use currencies for good, for positive purposes, for building economies. Um, but we own the know your customer risk today, which is, you know, who are the counterparties to a particular payment? And one of the things we want to make sure, um, you know, is still at the center of what we what we all do is that we have a safe system where we can identify who we're operating with. And so, you know, some of these more private, truly anonymous systems don't provide us that comfort. And we have to evaluate each one to see how we interact with it going forward. So lots of questions, lots of design. We're kind of at the very start of this journey. But you know, in the hands of many of our uh, clients and others, I think the question is, how will all of this play out? Who will use what for what purposes? And how can we, you know, be a positive catalyst for eventually uh, transforming the financial sector, um, both here within Europe and, and even further abroad? You also mentioned that COVID had an impact on, on ESG. Talk a little bit about that for people who may not know what uh, ESG actually is. Yeah, so ESG is a really interesting topic, and most people end up landing and spending most of their time on the E, which is the environment. But the S and the G are pretty important too. And the S stands for social and the G stands for government. And I actually have a friend who's in the technology world, and she would add a T at the end, which is technological. But in effect, what ESG really is looking at is what are the principles and values through which we're trying to operate our businesses? Are we caring for the environment when we do whatever we do? It might be financing something. Are we caring for our societies and the communities in which we live? And are we actually caring about the governance through which we do that? And one of the things that I think is uh, exciting is that Europe, interestingly, is becoming a global leader on this. And in some ways, you know, we talk a lot in the United States about the long arm of Uncle Sam. Um, in this case, it's kind of the long arm of the European government saying, you know, we want to be a leader in establishing, you know, minimum standards for the E, the S and the G. 
And how does that transpose into the business world? Well, on the one hand, you have investors wanting to see disclosures that prove that, you know, the company is not harming the environment, that the company is caring about its communities and the company has appropriate governance. And what we're finding interesting is that that is channeling, you know, there's a huge wall of money which is being channeled into those companies that can prove um, outperformance on those three issues. So where we used to care about things just like shareholder returns, financial results, I think the debate is moving now towards, and actually the money and incentives around it are moving more towards a balanced view of it's not just your financial results, but it's um, these other so-called softer factors, let's say, or um, which, by the way, are, are moving towards getting uh, being more um, hardly defined uh, using standards. And so one of the areas that the EU is really focused on is quantifying all of this and quantifying what do these standards look like and how do we get the data. And when we think about it from a city perspective, we think about it in three ways. The first one is how are we being a corporate citizen? So again, you know, when we're attracting our, you know, investors to us, we're thinking about that. The second is how can we advise clients as they start to go on their own journey to uplift their own companies? And then the third is how are European regulators going to be applying these standards to us um, in the financial sector? And that's perhaps one of the places where the EU and the European Central Bank are the most advanced is in thinking about how do they make sure that the financial system itself is operating in a greener way. Well, I could talk to you forever, Christine. This is brilliant. But as we wrap up here, I have one question that shifts gears a little bit. I want to ask you about things on the diversity front in Europe. You're a high-level leader in the corporate sector in Europe. Are more women reaching senior leadership levels in the corporate sector in Europe? And, and what about women of color in Europe? How are they doing in terms of rising in leadership positions as well? Yeah, so Europe, like in any area, is um, diverse. And when I say diverse, certain areas, like I think the Nordics, are you know really in the forefront of establishing what does it look like to reach gender parity. It may not always be racial parity, but certainly the gender parity discussion and gender equality discussion in places like the North uh, remains you know very very advanced and really a, a model for the rest of the world. We also have, you know, for the first time in the financial world and in the political world in Europe, some really exciting leaders. Um, I could obviously point to Ursula von der Leyen um, in the uh, European Union. You also have Christine Lagarde. And of course, here in uh, Germany, we have um, Angela Merkel. On the financial side within the banks, um, there's been some movement. I think the most prominent would be uh, Anna Boutin um, from Santander. So we're starting to see uh, women, you know, reach the top position in their respective entities. That being said, there's still a lot of room to grow. Um, and there's a lot of uh, different organizations that are focused on this in the region. I think in terms of women of color, I would personally love to see Europe find ways to now move 
not just in terms of the gender diversity, but also in the ethnic um, and or uh, background from a color perspective diversity within Europe. But I think that's somewhat behind gender diversity today. The good news is a lot of the European countries are putting in place the policy frameworks to start to get on that journey. And so I think generally speaking, things are looking up and um, I look forward to continuing to be a catalyst for change here in Europe to see more women and more women of color reach their full potential. Well, Christine, this has been an absolutely fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Beverly. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.